we're playing a, a chess game with the angel of death. The rules are rigged. The rules are rigged. Your competitor is always going to win. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Bob Carr's first job was as a reporter for the ABC's AM and PM program, and then for the Bulletin. But the law of politics had been there from a young age, and he entered Parliament in the state seat of Maroubra in 1983. He served as Premier from 1995 to 2005, making him New South Wales' longest continuing serving Premier. And then, after uh, an interregnum, entered the Federal Parliament as a Senator from New South Wales and as the Foreign Minister. Uh, again, his time in, uh, in politics was a productive one. As Premier, he had uh, introduced around 100 new national parks, been important in fiscal repair, uh, taken critical steps in drug law reform. And as Foreign Minister, he secured Australia a seat on the National Security Council, recognised our international position uh, on Palestine as one strongly supportive of a two-state solution. But we're not here today to talk about Bob's political life. We're here to talk about living a good life. What's fascinating about Bob Carr is, as anyone who has uh, read his diaries knows, uh, he takes diet, exercise, reading, opera, pretty seriously. He's a man with many passions. It's a pleasure to welcome him today on the Good Life podcast. Now, Bob, let's start with, uh, with passions. You have a few. Tell me about the leading ones. I think uh, a passion for learning is uh, a large part of me. I think life is a learning experience. When I spoke to youngsters uh, as Premier school leaders, big conferences of school leaders. I always push this notion very hard that you should always be learning something. I'm more intellectually curious now than when I was young. It was easy after high school to think you, were, you knew everything about a subject. Um, but intellectually, it's a constant argument and there are new discoveries all the time. So I couldn't, I couldn't imagine living without without learning. I think it's a, a bit of a vice as well. Um, and I fall short. When, I, when a little, little kid in the street, he goes to the French school when Helena and I chatted with him. He was on a, on a, uh, a uh, skateboard. I said, Leo, what do you do languages down at the French school at Maroubra? He said, yes, he does French, of course, uh, English, German and Latin. I thought how inadequate my efforts have been. (laughs) 
What are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading Don Quixote with all the pleasure that comes when you finally tackle a classic that has taunted you from the shelves for neglect for so long and find that you actually enjoy the rhythm of the book and and the um, the personality of the characters in it. And I'm rereading Gore Vidal's Burr with real appreciation, deeper appreciation um, of his uh, stylistic... Uh, uh, stylistic brilliance um, as well as the concept of it and the, the profound underlying knowledge of American history. You're somebody who uh, who enjoys rereading, aren't you? I mean, you go back to, to things like Proust from time, time to time? No, I've tried that um, and indeed there were two volumes that I read immediately on finishing all over again. But I tried once to go back and the the slow pace of it really did defeat me. I thought to myself, I'm not going to go through all this business of a kid in a, in a shadow struggling to get to sleep all over again. It seems to go on for a thousand pages. Um, I think there's a time when you should reread the uh, the Russians Brothers Karamazov and, and War and Peace. Um, and I could reread Chekhov's short stories any time, as I could with, with uh, James Joyce's Dubliners as the, the highest form. Isaac Bashiva Singer, they're the, they're the three short story writers I'd, uh, I could pick up at any time. I think it, I love the notion of... I, I grew up in a house without books. My father was a train driver and, and didn't want my mother to... Uh, maintain a, a career, uh, but but uh, look after the kids in the home. So there's really no there are really no books on the shelves. A few things about the war that my father had been in, um, but they had the Sydney Morning Herald and we had the ABC on. So, somehow, uh, somehow a uh, a deep desire for learning grew up in me. But I love I love bookshelves. I love shelves crowded with books. And when I look at them at home, I think um, the marvellous thing here is that I, I could take down a volume and just step in, step into a, a different world. I could inhabit that again. You'd really need three lifetimes to exhaust that, I think. The, uh, there's a, uh, a story of uh, the autodidact in uh, Sartre's Nausea who... Uh, uh, is discovered partway through the story to have a great knowledge of authors whose names run from, uh, I'm making this up, but it's A to H, uh, but no knowledge of any authors uh, further down the alphabet. And it turns out that he has collected a set of books which he will read over the course of his lifetime and is working through them in alphabetical order. Uh, do you ever feel that sense that the, the good works are being written faster than you can devour them? Yeah, and... and one buys them faster than you, you're possibly going to read them. Um, and just sometimes you pick up a book you bought years ago and and devour it. And that's very satisfying. For me, the great area is unread. I mean, this is where I fall short of Barry Jones's impressive standards. I'm illiterate in science. I'll never be charmed by mathematics I wish, I wish that at school one could have signed a contract with the principal 
and said, no maths for me, I won't do maths, but give me something, something hard to do with language like Latin mm. and Latin grammar. That's going to exercise the same corner of my mind that maths would, but um, I'm lost when it's the abstraction of numerals, but uh, love the words and the letters that can comprise them. One of the breakthroughs for me as a reader was realising that my key constraint wasn't the money I had to buy books, but the time I had to read them, and therefore that it wasn't optimal to finish most books. Uh, are you a finisher? No, I leave, I'd leave a surprising number uh, unfinished. I think um, this author has disappointed me. This author has disappointed me. It started with such flair, but uh, Umberto Eco let me down, or... Philip Roth let me down. Um, I was at a point where I could say, this is the novel, this is a great novel, but disillusionment <laughs> set in pretty quickly. And I, <laughs> I, felt, I felt that through the pages I could see the wheels turning and the devices of the author were exposed. The authenticity of the work sort of crumbled before my eyes. It was said that as Premier you used to uh, love attending sporting events because it gave you an uninterrupted hour and a half to read. Uh, did, how did you get it's away a, no, with... No, no, it's a wonderful myth. It's a wonderful <laughs> myth. Um, it, it, it's just an example of how something has, conge has congealed as a, a legend and I'm happy to live with it, but, but uh, on occasions like this I've got to point out it never occurred. You'd never be able to get away with it. You did. You you never read read books. At no, books? no. The the only remotest basis for this was that the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, which I was obliged to attend because we had the Sydney Olympics coming up four years later. We had to get to the seats before the opening ceremony, hours before the opening ceremony, and I had acquired a little bit of uh, Atlanta Civil War history, and it was too good an opportunity to miss in the in the twilight. Uh, waiting for the waiting for the games to be launched, to dip into that when you're in the middle of a civil war city. Hmm. Uh, when do you the, the civil war sites in Atlanta meant more to me than the uh, uh, the pretty ordinary athletic contest. I got to say. <laughs> uh, when do you uh, when do you read now? On the weekends, um, I don't read at night. My eyes are too tired from the stuff I've been reading during the day, and um, early in the morning over breakfast. But, but somehow as you get older and you've got more space in your life, um, the time's still hard to get. It's still hard to get. I mean, I, I read a bit on holidays over Christmas, but um, in the end, uh, two novels, uh, the, the recently uh, released novel on, on Shostakovich, um, um, a short and punchy novel, but, but full of thoughts. Who owns art? Who owns art? Do the people own art, as the Soviets insisted. It's called the uh, the music of time. That that was good, but you know, so little else. Uh, history of Spain in the Golden Age, which, which was a very good narrative history. But that about takes care of it. I mean, it is very time-consuming. Absolutely. Uh, and you've uh, you've also been uh, a diarist for uh, for for many years. Uh, how have you managed to keep up that uh, that diary habit? When have I haven't. No, I've abandoned it now. Um, so people who have confidential conversations with me can relax. But I am <laughs> I am struck. I was forced to. I was giving a talk to Luke Foley um, 
the leader of the opposition in New South Wales and to his shadow cabinet about how hard opposition is. And I was able to look, look at the diary for the last three years of opposition. I was opposition leader for seven years. And the roller coaster ride, this is connecting with you mm. and what you and your colleagues are going through, the roller coaster ride of opposition um, was, was so vivid in those pages. It was the diary of someone uh, in a rush, um, thrilled by success, despondent when the success has evaporated, um, hit by the murder of a front bench colleague, gunned down John Newman in his front mm. yard in Cabramatta, by by-election challenges, um, by a, a wildly popular premier, John Fay, who we pegged back and rendered liable to defeat, but who then had a run of luck that made us despair, winning the Olympics. He won the Olympics for Sydney. He then presided over, very effectively, over a bushfire crisis, and then completing this hideous trifecta, he appeared to save Prince Charles from an assassination attempt at an Australia Day ceremony, January 26, 1994. And as opposition leader, <laughs> one watched this and thought, what have I done to offend the goddess of fortune? And through it all, you uh, continued to, care, to, to keep a diary. Did that diary, did the keeping of that diary provide you with some sense of uh, stability? Was yeah, it did, but it's, it's hard to define. Uh, it, it reads to me like a, like a novel, like a, like a, um, uh, a thriller now, to be honest. I don't know how many people would be caught up in the drama. I think only professional politicians. But... Um, I think it's one of the most, satisfac most satisfactory things I've ever done. And I, I kept it up as premier. Now, there must have been a psychological compulsion to find time early in the morning or at night to make a diary entry or two. Um, it is, to take the Proustian expression, the pursuit of lost time, so much of life is lost, but a diary captures it. The reading, too, seemed important for you. I think it was uh, Bob Ellis who told the story of you during the 1995 campaign reading War and Peace and remarking that at one point the characters in the novel seemed more real than the, uh, the people around you. Uh, did you find that, that a constant practice of reading uh, in a very busy life gave you some additional stability? Was it insights into the world? What did, what, what did a, being a, a serious reader give you at those moments? Well, it was very important, and I read more intently as Premier, and not neglecting my duties, um, not inviting people to make that criticism, but if I had a, a spare three hours on a, on a Saturday or Sunday as Premier, and as busy as you are, that's not unreasonable, or some lovely leisure during the Easter Easter holidays. That's always a nice time for reading, I find, and you haven't got, you haven't got functions during Easter, by and large. Um, it meant a great deal to me to get through Russian classics or um, um, Marquez, Flaubert, I remember, gave one a sense that you weren't mentally stagnating while you struggled with the world of day-to-day -day politics and policy. 
So that's interesting. I had expected you to say that there were things that came out of the books that were immediately applicable. But for you, you're saying it was more a case of, of giving a, a sense of intellectual confidence in the broad. Yes, and uh, satisfaction, satisfaction. Mm. So I said at the outset that my, um, I've got a very strong notion that life is a learning experience. Your life becomes meaningful for a, a number of reasons, but um, partly because you are learning throughout life and perhaps sharing that learning. Um, and I didn't want to be, while being very busy as party leader, I was leader of the party for 17 years, I didn't want to have a sense that my, uh, my reading was being neglected. Um, other, peop other people would have, would have got refreshment from other things. Bob Hawke, I saw Bob Hawke at the races once. He didn't want to talk to anyone. He had the form guide folded. This is Hawker's Prime Minister. Mm. And he was sitting there there with with a pen poised, looking at the form of the Hawke. That was his that was his mental refreshment. Um, and other people from from following the uh, the rugby league. But for me, the respite and the refreshment was and it, it, it took over around about the time I was Premier party leader, anyway, uh, was reading hard literature. I call it hard literature. Do you find that that made you a better communicator? It, cert it certainly gave me the opportunity to enliven a speech. I remember speaking at a children's hospital, the Prince of Wales Children's Hospital, and I opened it by saying, the suffering of children. How do we explain this? How do we explain the children suffer? I said, if you think about it, it's a huge philosophical, theological question. And setting the scene in a Russian tavern, two brothers talking over cups of tea, sweetened with jam in the Russian manner, Dostoevsky, at the core of his book, The Brothers Karamazov, opens this very subject up. Ivan, the brother who does not believe in God, says to Alosha, his younger brother, who's a monk, I'm going to share with you stories from the Russian press about the suffering of children. And he goes on to say, if, if your God exists, and if I accept that, that's one thing, but if his universe requires the suffering of youngsters, as in these stories I've shared with you, it's not a universe I can share. The, of course, Dostoevsky, who was a deep religious believer in the Russian Orthodox faith, um, was mounting an argument against his own beliefs. And at that point, you can accept his genius. But anyway, I shared this, shared this with, with an audience at a hospital. And the speech was a good one, and I'm proud of it, not that anyone else would remember it today, but I was able to lift something out of the pages of a Russian classic and share it with my audience in a way I think that they understood at that time, at that moment. One of the things I love as a parent is reading hard literature to my children. Dickens? Uh, do you do Dickens uh, with them? We, uh, we're doing uh, uh, Mark Twain at the moment. Oh, we're wonderful. Doing, doing, wonderful. Uh, doing Tom Sawyer. Uh, and then... 
No, just uh, just just Winnie the Pooh. Even uh, Winnie yeah. the Pooh for a four-year-old is not. It's not written like the classic kids' book. It's got some some hard and some complicated language. But just yeah, I enjoyed reading it to my uh, younger sibling. Yeah, it's that sense of just stretch stretching them yeah. a little a little yeah. bit, yeah. and also giving them the sense that. Uh, when you encounter a hard a word you don't understand in a book, yeah. uh, that you should press on rather than stop. Yeah, indeed. Uh, now that that is terrific. Uh, uh, and and that's that's I guess what you're doing to that with that broader audience yes. there, taking yeah. taking the Russian story. Uh, what about other forms of uh, of arts? I, I understand you have uh, different views on the, uh, the the merits of Australian opera and Australian drama, for example. Yeah, I'm I'm disappointed. I, I love theatre, and when we go to London. Uh, we do it basically for the theatre, uh, the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the very best, the very best. And I have a sense that sometimes when you see a play done, um, there'll be moments in it or the flavour of the entire work that you'll be able to bring to mind for the rest of your life. And, and indeed there are. There are. I remember David Tennant doing a, a Hamlet in 1988 or 1989 at the National Theatre when he came out onto the stage of the Olivier um, to do the graveyard scene, wearing pyjamas. And his words seemed to hang in the frosty atmosphere created on the stage, this meditation on, on death, which is at the core of Hamlet. <laughs> Someone described it as a, as, a, as a Jacobean revenge drama, or Elizabethan, um, um, with with thoughts about death, thoughts about death in the guise of a Jacobean or, or Elizabethan revenge drama. I forget whether it was written while Elizabeth or mm. James was on the throne. Um, so I think I think theatre is wonderful, but we Australians have got to be frank. Uh, the standards, especially when we attempt the classics, falls below what I think is international might be regarded as international best. Um, and I think our directors have got a bit to answer for and I'd want to challenge them. I think I think with opera too, it's, it's, it's a matter of vision, but it's also a matter of cost. But to see the very best in the Vienna Opera, opera House, which has got English surtitles on the chair in front of you, which I'm not snobbish about, I do need them, um, is to understand at last how someone could be an opera fanatic. But it's to, the challenge is to see the world's best. A country like ours with a population of, of 25 million doesn't generally get, get into a position of marshalling the resources to achieve that best. When, right? I, when, I see, when, I, when I've seen Henry IV, part one and part two, done by the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, or the National Theatre in London, and have seen, seen seen some of those revered encounters between Prince Hell and Falstaff. Um, I, I've, I've had the sense that I'm at the very heart of English literature. Um, and at the heart in England, at the heart of a a theatrical tradition that's that's precious. That the director and the actors first did this at school, saw it as school kids performed, 
at Cambridge, joined one of the three available theatrical groups and performed it or watched it alongside or, or with people who became famous actors. Um, and that's, that's a living tradition in a way that theatre can't be here. And the same goes for, for opera in the German and Italian world. So for you, it's almost uh, uh, an experience of historical continuity as much as yes, drawing is, yeah. something immediate out of, the, uh, yeah. out of the experience. Yeah, I remember an interview with Michael Foote um, and he was talking about his love for bel canto operas. So they're the operas that lie in the territory between Mozart and Verdi, Donizetti, Bellini, um, Rossini. And the reason he liked them was that those were the operas that his literary heroes were listening to, Shelley and Byron. And it was history. It was going back in time. And... Um, with the great operas and a great performance of the great operas, Mozart, for example, I just think of the magic that this seized the attention of an audience in Vienna or in, or in Milan with, with Verdi um, all those years ago, and we can't think of anything better in today's musical language. Uh, Don Giovanni can't be improved on, nor can Verdi's Italo. Remember you once saying that uh, one needs to understand the, your history and geography to be properly rooted. Can you expand a little on that? Yeah, um, I uh, I launched a book last night at Glebe Books about a, a little corner of the New South Wales coast, the uh, Dewar National Park, and national parks in it by someone who'd um, explored it. All the wilderness areas, the three big rivers. Um, on a donkey um, and if you get to know a corner of the planet that well you will end up loving it I think patriotism arises from a knowledge of your country's history and geography um, if you absorb the Australian stories and being challenged by the works of Australian historians like Bill Gamage's book uh, biggest estate on earth um, and you're forced to think of Aboriginal Australia in a different way for example um, your fondness for the land is quickened so to know, you, know your country's history and geography and its, and its literature um, is at the heart of uh, your, Australian, your Australian patriotism I think I don't, I don't know how you I suppose you could love the place through knowledge of its, its sporting history but it needs to go go back to be deeply rooted in your in your view there. Yeah, yeah. I, me I remember a holiday we did um, in the uh, in the forests of Tasmania. What uh, wasn't heroic walking, but uh, just one day walks um, out of Freshenay, and um, those uh, the, the forests were beautiful. The uh, the lichen on the uh, on the rocks an old-growth forest, the crumbling, senescent trees and the, the young sprouts and um, the prolific vegetation. There's a mist going through it, mm. a mist circling through it. I thought, nothing I see in any of the world's great museums 
could compete with this. I mean, nature, nature has won the contest. It's a victory for for for, for nature. Um, I'll look at the I'll look at the beguiling works of Renaissance artists, but right now I'm persuaded that an ancient Australian forest system is full of more marvels than uh, the studios of Rubens and uh, Titian were able to produce. You've always been a bushwalker, haven't you? Yeah, but I, I, I don't want to pretend that I'm not a you know, Bob Brown standard. Uh, um, I just do short uh, one-day walks now in uh, places around Sydney. I'd love to do more walking. Um, I think I think walking through a natural landscape is a very special pleasure. And there might be something in our DNA. Uh, this is how pilgrims, this is how immigrants, this is how crusaders in a world before uh, mechanisation uh, journeyed. It's how, it's how humankind got out of Africa and, and began slowly to permeate the Eurasia. There's got to be something buried there that responds to this notion. Mm. Here is a, a natural landscape and under my own steam, I'm walking through it. Moving into the realm of exercise, you uh, you take your exercise pretty seriously. Um, can you talk to me about some of the people uh, who've influenced you in thinking about exercise? I understand the the late swim coach Tom Caddy had uh, had had an impact on you, and uh, and how that's developed your exercise regimen these days. Yeah, I've become a bit uh, through making mistakes. I've become interested in sports physiology, and exercise technique. And it's interesting to see see um, fashions change. The, the interest in interval training, mm. for example, is new. Of concentrating the exercise, making it very intense, and even now in the current versions, just getting on a bike and after a warm up, pedalling as fast as you can for a minute, imagining that a leopard's pursuing you. Um, so I'm. I'm inter- interested in that. I, th- I think it's just a matter of placing yourself in the low-risk category. No- nothing is going to uh, ward off the um, uh, the flukes that can take one out before you've finished reading all those books or doing all the good you want to do. <laughs> uh, but uh, how? Well, what, what do you do? What's your, what's your, da- well, what's your daily exercise? Yeah, I go. Um, I'm booked in for trainers at the gym three times a week to do weight training because the latest research is that it's it's beneficial in all the ways um, for example uh, bone density warding off I've warded off um, osteoporosis through um, over a decade of continuous uh, of conscientious weight training it's supposed to have even mental benefits it's interesting resistance training mm. positive against cardio but I do like once a week in addition again with a trainer to go in and just do um, functional, ex- hard functional exercises, um, uh, pushing a sled, for example. I think that's great, great fun, and to see your your capacity move up. And I found Pilates, uh, which I've done now, I guess for five or six years, a great, great benefit um, in in uh, minimising the chance of back pain. 
you'll be 70 this year. You, do you feel that you're, uh, you're fitter than you've been uh, in, in, pa- in past decades? Yeah, I'm fitter than I was fitter than I was, say, 20 years ago, fitter, fitter mm. than I was when I was Premier, when I relied on an opposition leader, when I relied on uh, a good, solid, up-and-down-hill-style walking for an hour and a half. Um, I don't think you can, can rely on walking. I think you need uh, something to challenge all your body mm. and, and the Pilates to shore you up. I'd recommend, I'd recommend Pilates very strongly. It's interesting, I've reached this view that some people just can't stand exercise. The notion of going to a gym with a trainer and going through a routine, Helena's like that, um, are just uh, strongly resistant to it. I mean, you're, you're someone who's now addicted to serious marathon running. You understand the addiction. You'd go, uh, you'd go mad if you were denied it. Uh, I couldn't run yesterday. I was uh, feeling like a caged animal by the end of the day. Yeah, that's right. But there are some people who just, just won't share that, and they'll they'll live with their happily with their waistlines expanding, um, and their lungs becoming weaker. But but there's you can't be vain about it. Um, anything can take you out at any moment. The other side of this is, of course, diet. And uh, I understand you used to tease Carl Scully in your uh, your earlier political days about his obsession with diet and then uh, became one of the most serious foodies that uh, politics has ever known. How did that evolution happen? I, no, I, I play it up. I, I mean, it's fun. I'm not, I used to tease him about being a vegetarian. Um, I think the challenge, according to the, <laughs> the current currently popular... Uh, theories is to minim- minimise carbs, and so that I, I've because there's a danger of me getting too thin. I uh, I tend to uh, gravitate towards what's known as a, a paleo diet, um, uh, fish or, or meat as the protein, uh, with uh, a lot of vegetables, but saying no to the, to the delicious sourdough when it's presented by the waiter. Fur, feathers or fins, I think, is uh, Rob DiCostello's advice to his <laughs> charges and uh, in, in what sort of meat they should be eating. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but it's all a game. I mean, the, the angel of death, Andrew, is sitting on the other side of the table, smiling wryly at you as you play chess, like in the, the great Bergman movie where the, where the pilgrims see a, a figure in silhouette with a cape and a sickle over his shoulder. He's just taking them out one by one. Um, the angel, we're, we're playing a, a chess game with the angel of death. The rules are rigged. The rules are rigged. Your competitor is always going to win. So you say, I take some Lipitor, as has general health benefits and particularly eliminates cholesterol as a challenge. So that's your, your chess man moves from one square to the other. And the angel of death smiles at you and he says, yes, but I'm going to move in here and give you, do something to the electrical wiring around your heart. So he's got to move and he sits back and smiles. You make another move, he another, and in the end, when his patience is worn out, he just takes you out in one swift swoop with his sickle. I mean, we're all skating as, as um, William James said in his book, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experiences, as if we're all skating 
on the thin ice in a, a lake enclosed by towering mountains, and the ice is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. So the, 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 the notion is to make sense of this, this short, this, this gift of time. And to go back to things I said to school kids I met as Premier, you've got to ask yourself each day, what can my contribution be? What's my contribution? I, I, I used to say to school kids, what's your contribution in the home, in school, in the community? Hmm. In the home, for example, looking after a, an older relative, you might want a kind word, taking a bit of time with a, an irritating younger sibling, and so on. Your contribution at school, you can uh, cooperate with your teachers. The teachers always beamed when I, I said this. Uh, your contribution in the community, if you joined a, a church group, uh, if you're interested in politics, of course I'd say this, the local branch of your political party ready to embrace you as soon as you turn 15. Um, are you interested in, a, in an NGO uh, dedicated to wiping out extreme poverty, for example? Hmm. What will your contribution be? What can you ask? I think that's the best the best challenge to give youngsters by way of an approach to life. Would you like to live for another 50 years? Uh, in, if, I, if I were given good mental and physical health, yeah. Um, I think, first of all, there'd be the fasc fascination of seeing what actually happens. After the summer we've been through in Sydney, um, which I think confirms everything about climate change that has ever been written, or... Uh, is complete, you could say, more safely, is completely consistent with, with what has been projected out of climate change, one's naturally curious about seeing where we are going to stand in 2050. Will there be a sudden technological breakthrough that prevents the planet becoming a, an ice-free planet mm. bedeviled by extreme weather events? What advice would you give to your teenage self? Um... I'd say, listen, Robert, you've got the big thing right. You know what you want to do. You want to be a, a career politician making a difference. That's right. And you've, in your rather surprising wisdom, uh, you've decided that the way to do that is to join a political party, a branch, and go to every one of its meetings. And then on top of that, to become active in a university ALP club, and in Young Labour. In the university club, yes, you were able to introduce yourself to the officers of the New South Wales ALP itself. And in Young Labour, you met Laurie Brereton and Paul Keating. Um, all right, but you're spot on. Just stick at it, but try to be less anxious about it all. Try to step back, be a bit detached. Um, that's the advice I'd give to the teenage Bob Carr who wanted to get there but wanted to treat every encounter as if it were the Battle of the Somme. What's an important issue on which you've changed your mind? I think America. I think America, my instinctive pro-American sympathies ran very strong fed by a fondness for American history and American writing. Um, I think I now appreciate the argument of Gore Vidal and some others that America can be a terrible menace 
to the world. Uh, it can get things astonishingly wrong. And I do that, I suppose, in the post-Iraq war, where the forces unleashed by the American invasion of March uh, 2003 are doing a lot of damage, a lot of damage. Mm. And one is forced to think of how Washington, buttressed by all those universities, those think tanks, huge reservoir of diplomatic and security intelligence, think of the CIA and its vast headquarters in Langley, um, got it so very wrong. With the capacity, as we now know, under a Trump presidency, to go on getting it wrong. And even when, even in, when the evidentiary base was firmer, for example, about the commitment to Afghanistan, which the Labor Party supported, which I, I supported, to have got that wrong as well. So I've changed my view, but I, I think it's mm. possible for me to see America not as the, the uh, underpinning of, of uh, a global order, but as a, a power, a superpower haunted by insecurities, thrashing around, capable of making astonishingly bad decisions, uh, a blind giant. And we've got to be, we've got to be careful. We've got to, certainly we've got to be aware of that capacity in America. When are you most happy? Um, I think, I think being able to tick the box during a day, to, to enjoy one of those days when you get things done, which suggests that, that I think work, having work to do, is indispensable to happiness. It's a pity that humans can't come up with something better than that, because there's a lot of fake busyness about work. I mean, I, I ask you how much of what you might do in a day as a busy politician is going to appear to you indispensable um, five years out. But it's hard to imagine without it, isn't it? It's hard, hard to imagine life without it. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, I, working with others is the answer. And again, that's a, a very commonplace thing. Work, working with others. I think um, we become better people because we're challenged each and every day to take account of the needs and the thinking of others and rebuking ourselves when we fall short at it, which in my case, I very often do. A friend of mine likes to say he looks for opportunities to be the dumbest person in the room. Uh, well, do you... That's so bloody healthy because, um, and, and, I, and I recommend it, uh, a politician goes into a function, what a terrible word, function. You go, you go somewhere and for a moment you're thinking, oh, there's not a person here I know. And when I sit down at the table at the start of the dinner, I won't know any of them. But if you take the approach that everyone at that table, everyone at that gathering knows more about quite a few subjects than you do, mm. you've got a motivation to ask them questions. And you can never get it wrong respectfully asking people questions. So be the dumbest person in the room and be brave enough to ask the stupid question. Hmm. 
And finally, what person or what experience has most influenced you in living an ethical life? Um, I think seeing, uh, seeing suffering and not wanting to add to the uh, reservoir of unhappiness uh, in the world. Um, Is there a particular setting in which you saw suffering that it had an impact on you? No, I think I think it's the the small, uh, very much the small wrongs, hmm. um, and um, I, I mean, if anyone's got a flicker of empathy, they there, there'll be times when you think, uh, why is why is so, why why is so and so called on to suffer like that? We're a neighbour with multiple sclerosis. A lovely Druze Lebanese family living next to us in Maroubra. Um, why, why should someone, a wonderful young woman, be required to, to battle this disease? Um, so teacher, love theatre, love theatre, love Sydney theatre, couldn't get enough of it. Great collection of uh, DVDs and videos, Shakespeare. Uh, and others uh, die prematurely from multiple sclerosis. This is how, again, it's like the, the question of the suffering of children in Dostoevsky. Mm. Um, and I think without any bigger ethical framework, just adhering to the golden rule, do unto others as you'd want done to you, is the best guide. But trying, if you can, against the distractions of busyness and fatigue and selfishness, trying to make a contribution just to relieving it. Um, but I, I don't say that in any sense of, I'd be a, a lousy preacher, I don't say that in any sense of um, complacency because I fall short of doing that so often. Bob Carr, thank you for sharing your wisdom and insights in the Good Life podcast today. My pleasure, Andrew. They're not many, they're not profound insights. They're pretty threadbare, but I'm happy to lay them out there. <laughs> Thank you again. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, why not let your friends know using Facebook, Twitter, or your favourite social media app. Next week, I'll be back with Maylie Carnegie on managing people, coping with email, and more.